investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, ladies and gents, to episode 48 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessler. Today is January 20th, 2020. It's a lovely Monday here. Going to talk about the most exciting M&A takeover battle finally coming to conclusion with Wesco winning the bidding war for Annexter at 100 bucks per share bumping out the private equity firm CD&R in a competition to get this asset. We're gonna discuss who's the real winner here. A private M&A transaction, just huge, huge in the startup fintech space. Visa acquiring Plaid for 5.3 billion, just stunning. Gonna chat about the strategic rationale behind that transaction. Some IPO news with Casper, the mattress company, going public. Should investors ghost this deal? You like that one, don't you? Lastly, On the trade war front, U.S. and China strike a phase one trade deal. What does this agreement entail? The most exciting public company bidding war of 2019. It finally came to an end with Interloper Wesco, their $100 bid prevailing and topping private equity firm Clayton, Dubillier and Rice's 93.50 friendly deal. We've been covering this situation for a while, and this is really just to conclude uh, this series covering the Annexter takeover bid. What happened here? The final price resulted in 23.5% increase in the price paid to Annexter shareholders from the initial deal announcement, which is a big win for Annexter shareholders, not to mention a big win for merger arbitragers who got in in the low 80s and now you see it uh, trading near 100 bucks per share on this friendly transaction. On the other hand, this deal uh, really represents a loss for private equity firm CDNR. They are trying to buy Annexter on the cheap. Initially, we talked about how it's a very low premium deal, very low multiple deal, but that share was uh, fixed given the bidding war pushed the price up 23.5%. Other interesting aspect is CDNR disclosed that they also made an offer for interloper Wesco, they wanted to actually own the combined entities. But it just kind of gives you the story of the current times, which is PE firms continue to be outbid by strategic acquirers because these strategic acquirers have pretty significant synergies, which allow them to pay uh, higher and higher prices because they do have that uh, the value of those synergies, not to mention they can pay in richly valued stock as well, which obviously private equity firms cannot. The other thing that we wanted to discuss is what's known as the auction winner's curse. Now this deal may or may not work out for Wesco. The auction winner's curse is that basically the winner in an auction is the person selling the asset because in an auction process, the dynamics are when you have two competing bidders, they become irrational and pay more than fundamental value. And did that happen here? I mean, it's to be seen, but Wesco They end up with quite a bit of debt here. Uh, Nonetheless, this deal really working out for Annexter investors and arbitragers who are the real winners behind this transaction. Uh, Not to mention, I mean, Wesco's, so far they're working out pretty well. Their stock has rallied 10% since this whole 
auction process was announced. Um, so West Coast shareholders doing pretty good thus far. What are your thoughts on it? Absolutely. It's, it's interesting to see Wesco rallying actually on, on the news of the acquisition. Uh, usually that would indicate that shareholders are in favor of it. As well, one more data point, um, as you had mentioned, Annexter shareholders are the real winners in this situation and merger arms in general. Um, but as well, so it, this last price of $100 per share is actually 36% above where Addixter was trading prior to the announcement. So a very healthy premium if for any investors that got in prior to any of the uh, any of the offers. But as well, um, CDNR, although they lost out on a undervalued asset with their original bid being bid up by Wesco, they still are entitled to a $100 million break fee uh, that will be paid by Wesco. Yeah, the other thing is that private equity firms, they really need to save face and prove that they can't be pushed around by other firms. So at some point, they just said, enough's enough. We got to protect our reputation because if they allow themselves to get pushed around, on this one then people know next time look you can force these guys to pay more and they'll just roll over absolutely and i guess lastly what do you think the probability of cdnr pursuing the pro forma wesco after annexter has been properly integrated what do you see that probability be i think there's a decent chance as we indicated in a filing it was disclosed that cdnr did make a bid for Wesco because they're trying to buy both companies and perhaps that's why the main reason why Wesco stock has rallied double digits since this whole drama commenced. Recent IPO troubles don't spook Casper as a mattress company filed for an IPO. Now what happened here was direct-to-consumer mattress company Casper, they filed their paperwork for an initial public offering and this paperwork is known as an S1 or prospectus. Casper intends to list their shares on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol CSPR underwriters being Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and Jeffries. Some background on the company, they've raised almost $340 million to date. Uh, they lasted a Series D venture financing for $100 million bucks at a $1.1 billion valuation. This was up from a $920 million valuation after $170 million Series C in 2017. We want to talk about fundamentals here. Should investors buy this IPO? Let's take a look. Number one, a lot of refunds and returns and discounts, okay? 80 million bucks lost in 2019 on returns, refunds, and discounts. This is nearly one quarter of its revenues. Not good. They spent nearly half a billion dollars on marketing over the past four years. I'm sure everyone has seen it on social media, Instagram, Twitter, they're everywhere. Facebook, this is a marketing company, number one. Another point being, it's a slow growth company. They have non-recurring revenues. I mean, what, is the, uh, what is, the, is the life cycle of a mattress? Fairly long, right? Really, no path to profitability in their finance, in their financials. The company's free cash flow is nearly negative 70 million for the first nine months of 2019. And that is up from uh, over $50 million loss during the same period of the year before. Wanted to chat about unit economics, so on a uh, per mattress basis. So after the 40% gross margin, they spend 29% on marketing, 27% on GNA, which is general and administrative costs, basically everything it costs to run the company. And so a net margin of negative 16% per unit. Not the best company you've ever seen in the world. 
But nonetheless, they're looking to uh, copy WeWork and some of the IPO marketing with just this wacky, wacky definition of total addressable market. They're claiming that it's a $432 billion global sleep economy market that they are pursuing. So, I mean, doesn't look too great, does it? No, absolutely not. And just to add to some of the fundamentals that you brought up is that their gross margins have been trending up from 42% in 2016 to about 51% in their most recent quarter. But most of that gross margin growth has been due to shifts um, to higher margin ancillary products um, like pillows and lamps. And as you'd mentioned, they're really looking to pursue this whole total addressable market of what they call the sleep economy. So it, it has them moving into things such as like sleep apnea masks, but also um, products focused towards pets. So it really seems like a lot of, they're, they're trying to do everything. And typically if you try to do everything, you don't end up doing you know anything really, really well, um, at least not well enough to disrupt incumbents. But as well, uh, you had mentioned the their returns as a percentage of their gross gross sales, and what's I guess disturbing is that that's actually been trending up pretty substantially. So the argument could be made that a lot of their recent growth is due to, as you had mentioned, marketing, but as well as this trend of their hundred day um, refund period, where you can just you know return the return the mattress. And keep in mind that these are you know heavy mattresses. They cost or they would you know weigh in the 50 to 90 pound range so that is a pretty decent logistics cost which isn't really as scalable as other costs such as marketing but as well some other interesting tidbits they mentioned influencer marketing regulation as one of the risks to the company and this is really brought about by the ftc becoming a lot more stringent on what influencers have to disclose in their posts and Casper has been very very aggressive um, with their influencer marketing I mean in in 2015 I believe it was they had a post from Kylie Jenner which like is estimated to have cost in the hundreds of thousands of dollars oh my so God. A, a very good deal for Kylie Jenner I'm not sure what the ROI on that investment from Casper would have been did it all for the gram didn't she <laughs> certainly uh, but as well just a couple last comments on their business model from my side is really it looks like their success here will be dependent on first at the very first just reversing the trend of returns as a percentage of gross sales that's absolutely imperative for them um, but then also it looks like they're really wanting to focus on adjacent product markets that have a faster replacement cycle as you had mentioned this is a, a the mattress segment is a really slow replacement cycle probably in that eight ten years you know the 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 issue with that being that the brand loyalty that they expect to the Casper brand None. may be overestimated because oh, if you're only purchasing something once every 10 years, you don't really pay attention to what the brand is, right? Yeah, exactly. Not to mention tremendous amount of competition. I heard there's actually 200 direct-to-consumer mattress companies. Like when there was one, yeah, that's a novel concept, selling direct-to-consumer online with social media advertising, but when 199 other competitors are doing that, there's really no moat, no competitive advantage, no durable competitive advantage here. And the other 
red flag is they're now moving into retail locations. I believe they have 60 retail locations looking to expand to 200. So, you know, from soup to nuts, you look at what happened here. Basically, venture capitalists fund massive losses direct to consumer looking to make incumbent uh, retail stores such as um, Mattress Firm go out of business, which they did. They went bankrupt. And now they're just looking to become another bricks and mortar retailer. And they're losing a ton of money getting there. So was it all worthwhile? You got to ask yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and really, like what it really looks to me like is that eventually they, I guess if they execute the way they would uh, like to, is that their mattresses would just basically be a loss leader and they'd sell all these ancillary products. And I really don't know how successful they'll be on executing that strategy as ex execution risk is pretty massive. Yeah, they're trying situation. to turn into the next Bed Bath & Beyond. I mean, that business is certainly struggling, so I don't know how successful that strategy will be. Just looking at all the red flags here, our conclusion, ghost the Casper IPO. After nearly two years of fits and starts, the US and China finally signed the quote phase one trade deal, which will have Beijing purchase an additional 200 billion of American goods and services over the next two years. In return, the US agreed to reduce the 15% of tariffs on 120 billion in Chinese goods down to 7.5%. So from 15% to 7.5%, tariffs still outstanding. Now this 86 page document, it echoed previous pledges made by China at the WTO or in previous G20 summits. So skeptics such as us kind of think nothing's really changed here. They initially agreed to do this stuff uh, over a year ago. So it's not, uh, should be nothing groundbreaking. Also agricultural goods account for a big chunk of these new purchases under this so-called phase one trade deal under this agreement. China will buy an additional 12.5 billion of those goods in year one and then 19.5 billion in year two. This is compared to 2017. And these goods largely made up of soybeans, pork, cotton, and wheat. The interesting aspect is this agreement doesn't require the government to change any laws or regulations in China. Cyber theft by China, as well as its use of industrial subsidies and its barriers against some US technology investments were not addressed. Basically, Trump started this trade war nearly two years ago, so I believe it was February 2018, to accomplish a list of things. Number one is to reduce the trade deficit by 200 billion. That's not happening here. Number two is to prevent cyber theft. That's not happening here. Number three, reduce subsidies to Chinese companies. That's not happening here. So ultimately, uh, my view is this is just kind of a marketing agreement to uh, such that both uh, Trump and uh, President Xi in China can claim a win. They got something done, but ultimately it hasn't accomplished any of the initial goals of this trade war. So I think it's uh, largely a marketing exercise to get positive sentiment out there. What are your thoughts on it? Absolutely. I think it'll be something that's used on the campaign trail. Um, and so, yeah, it's really just marketing. But as well, I guess there is, it has strengthened a little bit some of the protections for intellectual property theft um, in several ways for US companies that are seeking recourse after the theft of trade secrets. But really it's the way it's structured is that it's more for industrial IP theft and less 
the cyber side. So it's really something that's more driven in the 20th century as opposed to the more software intensive world that we live in now. Well, it's all happening in technology, right? Absolutely. That's where all the theft is happening. Absolutely. And so it's it's really addressing, you know, some recourse for something that wasn't the main issue. Um, so a little bit of diversion there that sounds good in theory, but really doesn't do a lot. Um, but as well, they, the other interesting thing that I, that I saw from the agreement was that China had agreed to not devalue their currency for the benefit of their exporters. And my initial thoughts were just that that is very unlikely to be followed as any sort of monetary um, policy changes can be argued that they're not just to devalue the currency, that they're done for other reasons. So I don't see a lot of a lot of recourse being able to be followed there. Um, but as well, just overall, um, they do they did mention, like in very vague terms, a dispute settlement structure, but it looks like it would just be very difficult to enforce. As, as you had mentioned before, Julian, a lot of these, uh, these issues that, that they did agree to were things that were ratified in different agreements. And if you don't follow the agreements, you know, and then there's not a ton of recourse. Right, the only recourse being more tariffs, which really has not worked out over the past couple of years. But nonetheless, I mean, you look at what got accomplished here, which we say isn't much, however, very positive for sentiment. And at the end of the day, it seems to be dialing back tensions between the two largest economies in the world. Uh, investors cheering the news, they pushed market indices to new all-time highs. And I really think it is just fabulous marketing on Trump's behalf. If you look back on his career, and it's mostly uh, his success has been from marketing. He's a very good marketer and I believe his ability to create this conflict and then stage certain resolutions, you can call this one a stage one or phase one resolution and there'll be more and more down the line. What the conflict does is it, it brings down sentiment, brings down the market, slightly hurts the economy, but then the resolution it bumps it up even higher than it was previously, such that I believe if this trade war had never even existed, the market would be significantly lower because you're not having that feedback loop of conflict, resolution, conflict, resolution, pushing up the indices higher and higher. Just a recap. Trump achieved none of his initial objectives, such as reducing sub subsidies, cyber theft, or a reduction in the trade deficit. However, U.S. officials promised to tackle these in the phase two talks that will begin later this year. So there we have it. We have the second season of the trade war coming to you um, and it should be an exciting one. Big deal in the private investment space with Visa announcing that is acquiring privately held fintech startup Plaid in a massive $5.3 billion deal. Now, Plaid's technology helps people link their bank accounts to mobile apps and is used by one in four Americans with a bank account. Used by apps such as Venmo, Acorns and Chime. And it's basically an API just connecting various apps to bank accounts. So Plaid is basically a middleman and they can charge fees for, for acting as that middleman. Plaid was founded in 2013. I believe it's gone through a number of iterations and pivots on its way to this massive success. I also believe that they changed their names two to three times uh, as they went through those pivots. So it goes to show you that, um, you know, it takes a commitment and, and, uh, you know, a lot of different 
hits at the bat to, to land a great success in this business and Plaid certainly uh, with massive success, a multi-billion dollar exit. They currently connect with over 11,000 financial institutions across the US, Canada, and Europe. Now how they started out was I believe they created a personal financial app and they had a lot of, uh, a lot of difficulty connecting that app to various bank accounts. So then they decided to pivot and, and uh, make that a key focus of their technology. So the $5.3 billion price tag, this is actually double what Plaid was valued at in its December 18 Series C round venture financing, which interestingly enough, not only did Visa participate in that round, but rival MasterCard as well. So MasterCard is an investor in Plaid. Some comments on the strategic rationale behind this deal. Well, card networks are concerned that consumer payments can move away from debit and credit cards to bank accounts. What this essentially does is allows consumers to pay for products directly out of their bank accounts while bypassing these so-called credit card rails altogether, which obviously would be very bad for Visa if payments are happening outside of their network. This deal can also help Visa address banks' concerns about security as more new players like Plaid gain access to their company's information, obviously a highly sensitive subject. Ultimately, this price of $5.3 billion represents a rounding error for Visa, which has a market cap of some $420 billion, so pretty much 1% to their current value. What are your thoughts on this massive uh, fintech exit from Plaid? Yeah, so certainly a, a rounding error for Visa, but very much not a rounding error for uh, Plaid's investors with this massive premium. Um, but as well, in terms of the strate strategic rationale, you kind of discussed some of the the rationale where it's a bit of a defensive move. Um, you know, looking at the you know the credit card rails that that payment side versus the digital uh, tra wire transfers and those types of payments that that uh, Visa was not a part of, and really just looking to diversify their business model. But as well, there is a little bit of um, a little bit of inkling into how defensive this acquisition was with a the, one of their acquisitions last year of Earthport, uh, which provides cross-border payment services to banks. Now, they had a, Visa had acquired them last year, but this was only after MasterCard had made an offer for the company. And so perhaps this Plaid acquisition, perhaps there was some interest on MasterCard's side and Visa just really wanted to move in front of that or, in a, or for another example, just looking to preempt any movement by MasterCard um, prior to an offer and perhaps by doing so, you know, although this does look like a very large premium that they're paying, could end up being less than what they would have paid in a bidding war had MasterCard um, had made a bid first and then egos came into play as as we saw in the uh, Annexter Wesco uh, CDNR situation as well. Yeah, and certainly this one looks like a so-called knockout bid at a valuation double uh, their last uh, financing round roughly uh, one year ago. But nonetheless, really interesting deal in the startup world. Uh, just shows you the interest in fintech startups. Five billion, five point three billion, a huge price tag, and certainly a lot of startup investors with a with a big win with Plaid.
And that is it, ladies and gentlemen, for episode 48 of the Absolute Return Podcast. If you liked it, you can always check out more at absolutereturnpodcast.com. Obviously, you should definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm the People's Hedge Fund Manager, and that is at jklamochko. That's J-K-L-Y-M-O-C-H-K-O, and you are? And I'm at M underscore Kesslering. All right, guys. Well, wishing you all the best trading, investing, speculating over the week, and we'll chat with you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.